0: So this has been like, I think most people think, I know Julie at one time thought that I just picked controversial subjects just for the sake of being controversial, and I'm sure some of you have thought that before too, but um, this has been a, a subject that I avoided for a really long time because I didn't know, I didn't know how I wanted to deal with it. And what I mean by that was I was aware, you know, a guy named Rob Bell wrote a book a few few years ago. What was it called? Love Wins. And he was one of the most successful pastors in the U.S. And he came out with a book. Um, and it's really vague. It's not very well. It's not very. Um, it's very well written. And he it, it's very well done in terms of thinking through the issue. But it's not very well done from a uh, biblical perspective and. So it got people, you know, he kind of begins the book with, is Gandhi in hell? Is a person like Gandhi who, you know, helped liberate India and did it through nonviolent means and really emulated many of the teachings of Jesus, is he in hell? And he goes through this whole thing. Well, he got thrown out of his church, I think. and I mean, he just caused a huge firestorm. And so I'd have a few, few people ask me, and I just wouldn't touch the subject. I would just say, I don't know what hell is. I just know it's somewhere that I don't want to go, <laughs> that I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> and I didn't want to look at it for a number of reasons, because number one, I didn't want to have to come to grips with the fact, really, 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 I didn't want it in my face, <clears throat> the thought of God tormenting people for all eternity, because that's what I believe, believed back then that the Bible really taught. And I just didn't want to have to deal with that kind of conflict in my own heart. And then I thought, well, what if these guys that say, you know, that teach universal salvation or whatever. What if they're right? Oh, my God. Can you imagine the controversy and the firestorm I would start for myself in my own life, in the church and among my friends? So I don't need that. So I'm just going to stay away from it. And so I just avoided it. So for whatever reason, I don't know what happened to me. A while back, a few months ago, whatever it was, I thought, okay, I'm finally ready. I'm going to dig in to the topic of hell. And really, this is something that I had been avoiding for years. And lest people who watch this or listen to this, because we are going to make this available um, online. We don't usually on our Wednesday night stuff, but uh, I know there's going to be people out there that are going to be critical and think that I'm just trying to compromise the gospel or just trying to water it down or just picking and choosing my favorite parts. Um, Not to mention that we all do that, but... uh, but that's really not the case. I really went into this study to find out what does the, the Bible actually say about hell. Because here's the problem that we have, I think. We become dogmatic about so many things that we genuinely do not know because we have not experienced it for ourselves, nor have we really talked to anybody that's experienced it, which is the afterlife, Right. We haven't died. We don't know. So it's a mystery for us. So I don't want to be dogmatic. I didn't approach it from the standpoint of I want to find out exactly what happens to people after they die and how judgment and all that works out. I know what I've been taught. I know what I believe the Bible says. I know how I've answered people as a pastor. Uh, I know the consequences socially to myself if I go one way or the other. Um, you, you, You see what I'm saying, what I'm getting at? And I know somebody will say, well, there have been people who, you know, like that guy that wrote the book, 23 Minutes in Hell, and then, you know, Mary Baxter, whatever, Divine Revelation of Hell, and then there's people, Christians going to hell, and Francis Chan wrote a book in response to Rob Bell's book about, you know, validating. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But here's the thing, and I know Kenneth Hagin is another one that claims that he died and went to hell and then got... You know, came out and got born again, and all this stuff. So we have, you know, the testimonies of people who claim that they were there. But that's just the point. There are people who claim that you and I really don't know. And so um, I'm not sure it's wise to take our theology from stories of other people's experiences that we don't really have any way of verifying or having personal interaction with. It just puts us on some shaky ground, I think. But the other part of that is is you are again cherry picking experiences because believe it or not, there have been thousands of documented case studies, peer-reviewed science of people who have had near-death experiences around the world. The vast, vast, vast majority of that research shows that people have generally the same experience, which is they leave their body, they can look down, they can hear conversations, they can hear the doctor in the other room, whatever, then there's a tunnel, there's light, and most of them go to God. And so you can find, for every you know, person who claims that they died and went to hell, you can find many, many, many more people who claim to have died and gone into a place of bliss or love or light or whatever. <laughs> and um they didn't they weren't christians some of them were muslims some of them were buddhists some of them were were christians who had gotten into sin or or whatever you you know however we think all that stuff's supposed to work out we put so much energy and i guess rightfully so because we think you know once we die it's forever so we got to know what's out there but we put all this energy into trying to convince people of stuff that we really don't know about (laughs) but my point is you can't Pick one or two people who went to hell and say, okay, so see, there's a hell because we have one or two people. And then you ignore, let's say, a thousand people who didn't go to hell. It's intellectually dishonest. And so I don't think that that's good grounds for us to make our decisions upon either. So I want to base what I'm going to be doing um, the next few weeks or whatever, as long as it takes for us to get through this, is base it on what does the Bible actually tell And what does the Bible actually say about the subject? So I had to dig into it for myself and start researching it. So I have been able to drop the idea, to let go of the idea of hell as eternal conscious torment... Not in spite of what the Bible says as a result of really trying to do an honest study. Because I sat down and I said, I want to find out what the Bible says, and I want to let the evidence speak for itself and let the evidence lead me. So in other words, I tried to lay aside myself, serving bias as much as possible, my traditional beliefs as much as possible, what I'd been taught as much as possible, and be a researcher as much as possible and say, okay, I'm going to research this topic, and I'm going to let the evidence lead me. So we're going to attempt to look at what the Bible says about hell. But in order to do that, let's deal with some presuppositions that we have. Now, a presupposition is something that you believe that you don't realize that you believe uh, before you take it into an experience. Or it's something that you have to believe in order to make sense out of what someone is saying. So, for example, if I say to you that I put together a presentation on my, in Keynote on my iPad so that I could do the teaching, and you accept that statement, you have to presuppose a number of things. You have to presuppose that I have an iPad. <laughs> you have to presuppose that I have Keynote. You have to presuppose that I know how it works. You have to presuppose that I can type. You have to presuppose that I put forth some study and effort to uh, put some research into what was saying. If I say I did some research, you have to presuppose I read some books or listen to some people that were smarter than me or wh- however that is. But you see what I'm saying? You have to bring a set of presuppositions be- to really make sense out of anything that's being said. So we bring presuppositions to the text, and when those presuppositions are especially emotionally loaded, they become even more blinders to us than even normal presuppositions. So the more emotionally invested you are in something, the harder it is to see the presuppositions that are there. And the more you hear something told you over and over and over again, the more true that it seems, the more that it gets into your biology, literally into your body, your beliefs get into your body, which is why... When your most cherished belief is challenged, you get triggered. Most people do. That's why most people get triggered over political ideologies, because they're very emotionally invested in their political ideology, and maybe they've heard it repeated to them over and over and over and over again. So if you challenge it, rather than listening to the challenge, they get lit up. Now, you can take someone else who's not emotionally invested in politics, and when they're and they just don't listen to it they don't care they're like uh who's the guy on fox news that did the man on the street inter- interviews or whatever you know they go up yeah go up and ask the guy you know who is vice president of the united states and they're like abraham lincoln or something i mean so th- that person doesn't care so The point I'm making is that our beliefs become hardwired into our biology and by repetition, by emotional investment, by how much money we've given to certain causes and things. And the more it gets hardwired into our biology, the harder, the more true and the more real it feels and seems, and the more closed off we are then to anyone who may have something else to want to bring to us, which means that we're more closed off to information, which doesn't necessarily mean that we have the truth. In fact, we may be more blinded from the truth. And all of that comes into play with what we call a self-serving bias or the presuppositions that we bring to the text. Make sense? Now, the first problem that we have, or the first thing you have to understand, and one of the things that I realized when I was going through the study on hell is that we really do take things out of their context. And there's two ways you can take things out of their context and change the meaning of something. Now, here's my question for you. If there is an original meaning to a message that the sender is sending, and that person is a smart enough communicator that that person knows the audience... Because in any communication of meaning, there is the sender and there is the receiver, right? And if you're going to under, if, if, if the sender wants a message to be understood, then the sender has to consider the receiver and how they're going to take the message and how they're going to understand the message. Now, if thousands of years later, you have the same sender, You have a record of the message and a thousand years later you have the same sender but you have a receiver who thinks totally differently and therefore changes the message to fit how they understand it. What? Is it still reliable? Do you see what I'm saying? If... if, if you, if the sender sends a message with an intention and to communicate meaning, and someone changes that message, then is the change in the message valid? Or let's put it this way, which is more valid? When we look at what maybe the sender intended in the audience that he intended, or over here, which one seems more valid to you? Am, am I being too confusing with this? mm-hmm The intention, he said, I think the intention is valid both. The intention can be valid, but that's not my question. My question is the meaning of the message. So the intention can be very valid, but either it meant this or it meant this, right? Do Do you see what I'm saying? Or at least we can say if the person over here changes the message, this is not being true to the original intention of what was Spoken and said. Does that make sense? So, the first way you take something out of context is like we're used to. You do like little um, sound bites. You know what a sound bite is, right? Somebody does an interview and you want them to appear a certain way. And so maybe they explained what they were saying, maybe they explained their intentions and that kind of thing in a long paragraph, and they said something that fits your agenda. In a sentence, and so what do you do? You grab that one sentence, and you make it a soundbite, and they play it on the news. Anybody ever experienced that? You know, like, so-and-so said this, and it's just a soundbite, and then you go back, and you see the context in which it was said, and it's like, oh, wow, that has a totally different meaning than what they were making it out to be. So that that's what happens to us when we take verses of Scripture out of their context, um In other words, we take one verse when maybe a chapter is, let's just say hypothetically, a chapter is 20 verses long, and we take one verse and we say this, but then when you put it back in the whole flow of the thought, it can mean something totally different, correct? So that's the first way things are taken out of context. The second way things are taken out of context is when they are completely removed from their cultural context uh, in which they're being said. So I've used these examples before, but think about if I were to say to you, I have a flat, I have a flat, what would most of you think? Because what would you think? Thank you. I had a flat tire. So that's going to be the image. That's going to be the meaning, right? But if you were in the UK or you were from the UK, what would you think that I meant? House. An apartment or house. So there's a big difference between a tire and a house, <laughs> right? Same language. Same time period, just different parts of the world. When we deal with the Bible, we're dealing with a text that's written in a different part of the world, but is written thousands of years apart. So in the 1920s, if I'd have said, I'm gay, what did I mean? I'm happy. If I say today, I'm gay, I may be having a good time or not, but that's irrelevant. If I say I'm gay, I'm making a statement about my sexual orientation. So that's just in, what, you know, uh, a century change. So same culture, same people, same geographical region, but a time span has gone by, and the words mean different things. So, you see it? So how much greater of a problem can it become for misunderstanding when you're dealing with terms that are in a different language, in a different part of the world, and you're centuries removed from it. So let me give you an example. So so if we're going, I think, if we're going to be true and integrous and honest with the scriptures, then as a teacher, it's my job to do the work to see what do scholars and historians and archaeologists tell us about the ancient cultures, and what do we know about the ancient cultures? What do people who have devoted their life to studying this stuff, what have they found that these texts mean for us? Fair enough? All right, so let me give you an example. So if I were to use, have you ever used this, or maybe you got saved with this, or used this with some people, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Anybody ever heard that? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, right? What in, in the context of our religious experience and our own sociological context of evangelicalism or Pentecostalism or whatever? What does that mean? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Pray to prayer. What prayer? Typically, pray the Sinner's Prayer. And got what? What happens after you did that? What happened after you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You got saved, right? Mm-hmm. Saved from what? <laughs> saved from your sins. What else? Hell. That's what I thought, man. I didn't want to go there and burn me for eternity with pitchforks and fires and worms that don't die and all that stuff. So basically, it goes something like this: that here now now here so. Watch the presuppositions. Look how I drew them out. What does that mean? Well, it means that you prayed a prayer. Well, what prayer? Well, you prayed the sinner's prayer. Well, what does that mean? You got saved. Well, saved from what? Well, you got saved from your sins. Well, you got saved from hell. You got, whatever. Right? All that stuff, I just asked the statement, what does it mean to receive, or uh, have you heard the statement, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What does it mean? All that stuff is the presuppositions that is the loaded meaning around that phrase. Make sense? And so basically it goes something like this. God loves you, right? God loves you. But your sin, which we define as bad behavior, (laughs) your bad behaviors have separated you from God and placed you under his wrath and under his judgment, yes? Jesus died to save you. Jesus died to save you. And if you believe this, if you believe that this is true, you accept this information as valid and factual, then you enter into his salvific work, his saving work, by receiving him and believing in him, right? That's typically what we mean, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. This formula and, in fact, these very concepts are surprisingly absent from the Scriptures. (laughs) Surprisingly absent from the Bible. Now, let me ask you this question, because this is one of the things that got me thinking. I was just thinking one day this thought just entered my mind. Let me ask you this question. We say God is love. Do you think you know what what loving is? I mean, let's just be honest. Don't, don't tell me no, because it's not a mysterious thing. When you have a baby, you have a grandchild. Uh, do you love that baby? Do you love that grandchild? Do you get confused about what it means to love them? Are you very crystal clear on what it means to love them? Okay, some of you are nodding, and some of you think I'm setting you up for a loaded question or so. I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm, <clears throat> I'm saying, when, if we're being told that God is love... And love is an experience that's part of the human nature. Right? I mean, Jesus did not call people out because they did not love. He called people out because they only loved those that were like them or their family or their friends. They didn't love people outside of their circle. So his call was not, you don't know how to love or you don't know what love is. His call was, your love is too exclusive. exclusive to to its, its, right? So would a loving God who calls you to be inclusive and love people who are not just part of your circle and love people who don't just think like you and love people who aren't totally like you, would this God that Jesus talked about, this ethic that Jesus, I mean, that's how Jesus defines love. And then later we're told God is love. So how does it make sense then that God excludes people that just because they don't have the right information. Because that's what it boils down to. Did you hear the gospel and did you believe when you heard? So did you hear the right information and did you believe it? And then here's the thing, this loving God stakes all of eternity on that one thing. Couldn't he have come up with a different criteria? I mean, he's God, right? Couldn't he come up with a different plan? Think about creation. Think about the vastness of the universe, the galaxies, the stars. Think about the the diversity in the mineral kingdom, the various different kinds of rocks and crystals and things. Think about the diversity in the plant kingdom and and flowers. Think about the diversity under the ocean. (laughs) Think about the diversity in the animal kingdom. Think about diversity in humanity. So would a God who created something so vast and so incredible and so complex be so shallow and so simplistic and so exclusionary that the best plan of salvation he could come up with was you believing something that you actually can't validate? Think about this. Think about crusades. People go into gospel crusades and a preacher preaches to them. They don't know that person, (laughs) that Jesus was raised from the dead. They don't know that person. The person who's telling them Jesus was raised from the dead doesn't know any of the people who actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. Cannot verify it in any way except through a book and a tradition that has been passed down And yet God says, if you don't believe something that goes totally radically contrary to experience, which is someone died (laughs) and got back up after three days, most of us have never seen that or experienced that. But we have certainly, most of us in this room probably, experienced the loss of a loved one. So you're being asked to believe something that's completely contrary to human experience based on, even in the Bible, it said that Jesus only appeared to 500 people after he was raised from the dead. So there were 500 eyewitnesses. And you're supposed to believe something that happened 2,000 years ago that only 500 people saw that's been passed down. And if you don't believe it, you can't verify it in any way other than you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit testifies to your heart. Mormons say the same thing when you read the Book of Mormon. They say whenever a person reads the Book of Mormon, the fire will be in their belly. And testify. So who's right? So really, God's going to send you to hell because he's got to put you in this confusing environment where there's all these different voices, people making different claims to God, people making different claims to truth. Your experience has told you that people, at least some of them, are liars. But if you don't believe this, it's an eternity in hell for you. The God who created everything that I just told you about. Really? That's His plan. So, He spent more time and more complexity creating this world for you to inhabit than He did on figuring out how to save you. Somebody comes back and says, well, well, th- He just, He made it simple. Really? What's the number? Talk to people. Just, just go talk to people. What's the number one reason people don't read the Bible? It's too hard to understand. Survey says, ding, 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 number one answer. (laughs) So that's the other part of it. That simplistic pattern that I gave you, God loves you, your sin separated you from God, Jesus died for your sin and you just believe it and you come into heaven and escape hell is not found that simplistically or that that formula anywhere in the scriptures. So God not only does He, He, He come up with this plan, but He makes it difficult for people because He hides it somewhere in the scripture and He gives people this book that they say, I sit down with the book and I just can't understand it. Well then how can they get saved? Well you can't, well brother, you can't understand the Bible because you don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, well how do I get the Holy Spirit? Well you you get saved. Well how do I know how to get saved? Well because the Bible said, Do you see how jacked up that is? But yet, for some reason, we're content with those answers without realizing it's turning us into a philosophical, intellectual pretzel. And very simplistic. And Anyway, you get the point, right? I need to let it go. (laughs) John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but be... Saved, right? There it is. Simple. One nugget. There it is. One verse you can give people they can get saved. Here's the problem. What's it mean to believe in Jesus? Because I'm pretty sure that that group that is believing in eternal conscious torment and trying to get you to pray that sinner's prayer would not say that Mormons, (laughs) who, what, (laughs) the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I mean, they believe in Jesus. They use the New Testament. What about historians that believe in Jesus? Are they saved? Or here's a big one. You do realize that Muslims believe in Jesus, right? So are the Muslims saved? Well, then they have to backpedal on Paul. Well, no, 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 no. you have to believe these certain things. Wait a minute. I thought it was simple. It's John 3.16. Where does it say in there you have to believe all this other stuff? So pretty soon it becomes very complicated to know. Now, here's the stakes, though. How are you going to miss eternal conscious torment in the flames of hell? Couldn't God come up with a better plan? All right. So, but the Bible does talk about Jesus as our Lord and Savior, right? Yes. Titus 1.3 is an example. Paul talks about Jesus and calls him Lord and Savior. Problem is, It didn't mean that in biblical times. Salvation wasn't this get-out-of-hell-free card thing. (laughs) Because the word Savior in the Roman world, the word that gets translated Savior was, and I quote, a laudatory name, laudatory meaning you're, you're praising them, you're giving praise, a laudatory name or a praiseworthy name that men bestow in recognition of noble actions. So if you were a person in that culture who did something noble, they would might give you the title and the name Savior. It doesn't mean you saved them from hell. It doesn't mean that you saved them from the wrath of God. It just meant that you did noble deeds. Now here's the the other part of this: the title specifically Lord and Savior was a title and role that was used for Caesar. So here's the thing, in 42 BC, now watch this, in 42 BC, Roman law defi- deified Caesar, or made Caesar to be God, and Augustus was the first to take on the title, Son of God, Lord and Savior of the world. Which means, just a few decades before the birth of Christ, the world already had a Lord and Savior. And the world already had a Son of God, and his name was Caesar. Caesar. And Paul, who uses the title more than any other that refers to Jesus as Lord and Savior, to whom is he preaching and teaching? To the Gentiles who were part of the Roman Greco world or those who were under Caesar's... So in other words, he's going to a group of people who already have a Lord and Savior, who is Caesar, and saying, you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. So is he talking about eternity? Is he talking about hell, or is he making a political statement? It'd be like going into a Trump rally and saying America's not great. <laughs> it really would, because <laughs> here's the thing: in the Roman world, the go- the gospel of Caesar was actually a term that was used, and it was a term that was used for Caesar bringing peace. Stability and security to the world. People were encouraged to have the faith, to have faith in their Lord and Emperor who would preserve peace and increase wealth. In other words, your Lord and Savior was Caesar and you were told as a good Roman citizen, have faith in your Lord. Listen, the Romans weren't going to get upset if if the people in the early church were being saved from hell. They're not going to crucify him because they they believe in another god. They were polytheistic. They weren't monotheistic. They weren't insisting there's one god. They believed in many gods. So if you wanted to have a god, as long as you were a good Roman citizen, and you do things for Rome and whatever, and you believed in something in the afterlife, they were content to let you have that. But when you started using the title that was used for Caesar and applying it to Jesus and talking about Jesus' kingdom and talking about him as king, you are making radically subversive statements to the empire and to the state and to Caesar himself. So to say that Jesus was Lord in the first century was to say that Caesar was not. Let's talk about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What are you saved from? What is salvation? Somebody would ask you before we started this, or before you started coming and listening to me, what is salvation? What, what did you mean back in the day when you said, I'm saved? Saved from what? Thank you. Going to heaven. Which means you're not going where? Hell, right? Because you have to be saved from something. <laughs> right? Let's look at salvation in the Bible. The story of Zacchaeus. Let's look just Luke 19 real quick. Luke chapter 19. Verse 1. It says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and now behold there was a man named Zacchaeus. Remember him? Who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. But he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to your house because he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Today, how did salvation come to his house? Did he pray the sinner's prayer? Did Jesus sit down over supper and tell him about the torments of hell and get him saved over dinner? What happened? He said he'd, so we know that he stole, right? So here's the thing. His character was transformed. His life was transformed in the moment. He was changed as a person who went from someone who steal, who stole and defrauded and was separated from the community because of it to someone who was probably joyfully received back by the community because he made good on all this stuff. So he's saying, look, Lord, my heart is changed. My life is changed. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Not in the hereafter. Not on judgment day. Today salvation has come to this house. And then he says this, one of the most taken out of one of the most worst sound bites ever, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was... Lost, Right? He's not talking about saving people from hell. Do you see it? So the biblical concept of salvation, when you look at it, becomes very, very different. It's not this idea of being saved from hell. You have to presuppose it. The word salvation in the Greek is soteria. It means to preserve, to rescue from danger. Or to bring healing. Right? Now, let's talk just for a minute about hell. Uh, I don't want to do that part of it. Here's the interesting thing. The, The idea of hell, the idea of hell, was pagan to the Jews. There is no concept of the afterlife in the Hebrew scriptures except for one that we'll look at. But certainly the idea of hell did not exist. But you'll find hell in the Egyptian culture. The Egyptians, the later Egyptian empire, had the idea that you would cross the River Styx and that the wicked would go to these places of torment. The Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, heck, even the Buddhists have a hell. Most people don't know that. They do. They're terrible, by the way. (laughs) Um, Native Americans... Some of the tribes had the idea of people going into a hell. But not only were Jews unique in their culture and day in that they were monotheistic, they believed in one God, they were very unique in the fact that they had no concept of hell in the afterlife. won't find it in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, in Jesus' times, the Jewish people who believed in the afterlife, because they came to believe in the afterlife after Babylonian captivity. So in Jesus' times, the Jewish people who believed in the afterlife did not teach a place of torment for wicked souls. Watch this. But rather a place where one becomes fully aware of one's shortcomings and negative actions in one's life. In other words, if you were lived a really bad life, there were some Jews who believed in an afterlife at the time of Jesus. It's still not in the Hebrew Scriptures because those were all written prior to the New Testament, right? So those were done being written before Jesus shows up. And we have this thing that evangelicals call the 400-year silent period. Between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, they say God was silent for 400 years in there or whatever. But So during that time, they were in Babylonian captivity. They picked up ideas Possibly from the Persians and from Zoroaster, Zoroaster, who believed in a resurrection and an afterlife. And so then you see a culture, a Hebraic culture, that comes out and now believes in an afterlife. But here's what they say. If you live a wicked life, God's not going to punish you. God is going to send you to a place where you can wake up and realize the painful and harmful. You can see the error of your way, in other words. And the idea was you would be excommunicated from the community of the righteous till you saw the error of your way in a place that they may have called, they wouldn't have called it this, but they may have called it hell, and the longest duration anyone could spend there was one year. Why is it so hard for us to believe that God might have a redemptive capability like that? Like, why do we have to believe that God just punishes people for the sake of punishment for all eternity because they didn't get the facts right? And why can't we believe, why is it so hard for people to accept that if there is a play, a holding place where the wicked go, why is it, why can't God be smart enough, loving enough, big enough, intelligent enough with his own creation to get his own creation to see the error of their ways so that they can be purified and restored back into the family of God. Why is that such a heresy? That was the Jewish idea. And that was, and that was a minority Jewish idea because, again, the Hebrew Scriptures don't teach a place of eternal punishment. They don't teach an afterlife. The Hebrew Scriptures are solely focused on this life. Let me give you some examples. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 2, chapter 16 and 17, God puts two trees in the garden, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does he tell Adam's going to happen? Adam and Eve's going to happen to them if they eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, don't you think it would have been right of God if he was going to send the majority of Adam's children to hell because the majority of humanity is going to perish, according to evangelicalism, right? Narrow is the way that leads to right. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, right? So you see pictures. All these people are going into hell and just a few are going to be saved. Well, wouldn't it have at least been fair of God to say, in the day you eat of it, you and all your seed are going to be punished for all eternity? I mean, wouldn't that have been a good place to talk about hell and eternal conscious torment if that was the penalty for sin in the Bible? But he doesn't say. He says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Another verse in Leviticus that says, "The soul that sins he shall die." Now don't try to give me this esoteric meaning that God meant death was eternal separation from him, because that's not how the readers were reading it. They understood it to be physical death. Absolutely. The word that gets translated hell in our Bibles is the Hebrew word Sheol. Everybody just say with me Sheol. Alright, Sheol. Now Sheol gets translated as hell, but Sheol means the common grave of all humans. It means in the ground. In the dirt, your body. Everybody's going there. In Psalm... This is how your translations get messed up. In Psalm 19, verse 17, let's just look at this. Um... In Psalm 19, verse 7, probably. I hate when I do that. Anyway, it talks about the wicked going down into hell. I don't have the address right, but will you believe me that there's a verse in Psalms that says, God says the wicked will be turned into hell? Yeah. It's the word sheol. Sheol. In Genesis 37, oh, it's because I'm in Psalm 19. I need to be in Psalm 9. Let's look at it. <laughs> I didn't look at my notes right. Psalm 9, verse 17: The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? That's that's the place that they deserve, right? Look in Genesis 37. Verse 35, Jacob talking here, verse 34, it says, Jacob just found out that Joseph is dead. It says, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Now, if you just read that, what does it mean? He means I'm gonna live the rest of my life in grief. I will go to the grave in mourning for my son. That's what he's saying, right? Guess what the word for grave there is? Sheol. So look what your translators do to you. When Jacob says it, Jacob's one of the one of the patriarchs. In fact, when Jesus is proving to the Jews the resurrection. He says to them, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is God the God of the living or of the dead? He's the God of the living. He's refuting the Sadducees. So we know Jacob, based on Jesus' own testimony, went to heaven, if we read it that way. But here Jacob says, I'm going to go to my grave in mourning,' but it's the word Sheol. So watch what your translators do to you. When it says, the wicked and the nations who don't fear God they will go down to Sheol. They translate it as hell. But when it's a patriarch that says, I'm going to Sheol, what if Jacob had said, I'm going to go, in, I'm going to, go to hell in mourning. I'm going to go to hell in mourning for my son. How would that have gone over in your Sunday school classes? So when it fits your bias, that it's the nations that are wicked and forget God, we translate it as hell. When it doesn't fit with your bias, oh, he couldn't have meant hell. He has to mean grave. And then we say, oh, this is the word of God. It's the same word. Can you see it? There's places in Psalms where David talks about going down to Sheol. And if you look on Jewish websites, they are going to tell you that Sheol is the grave. <laughs> it's, the, it's a place where everybody goes, irregardless of good, bad, and what they believed and who they worshipped. And that's the only word in the Old Testament that gets translated as hell. It's the only concept that's there for you. Except in Daniel chapter 12 where it says those that sleep in the dust will awake, some to everlasting contempt and some to everlasting life. But that was written after the Babylonian captivity. Or at the very least, if you want to be a super purist, during the Babylonian captivity. And we know the Babylonians believed in resurrection and life after death long before the Jews showed up. So if you have a culture that believes something and you can prove it long before... Another culture shows up, and you can prove based on this culture's writing. So you look at this culture's religion, and they, they believe in a devil, they believe in resurrection, they believe in, uh, hell. You're with me? And then you have this group, and you can go back and read their writings for centuries before the groups meet. Then you have this group over here, they don't have any belief in hell, they don't have any belief in the afterlife, they have no concept of the devil. And really no concept of a savior. And they, this culture goes into this culture. And then they come out and all of a sudden now they have a devil and a belief in the afterlife. Who influenced whom? All right. Romans 6.23, Paul says this. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Now don't you think it would behoove Paul. Don't you think it would be grace? It would, it would be integrious of God and compassionate of Him and loving of Him if He was going to send people to an eternity in hell because they sinned? Don't you think He should have said that? The wages of sin is hell. He had a word for it. The wages of sin is everlasting conscious torment. He doesn't say that. What's He say? The wages of sin is death. Right? So while we're at it, what is sin? How do you know what a sin is? Missing the mark. What's the mark? What's the mark? Okay, but according to, like, there's a verse in the Bible in James that says, when you break the law. So, for most people... It's not this subjective thing. What's right for you is right for you, and what's wrong for you and wrong for you, and what's right for me is right for me. It's not that subjective thing. It's, you have, it's the law, right? So that we could say the Ten Commandments. Haven't you guys heard these gospel presentations? If you fail at one point of the law, you can live your whole life perfectly. But if you break one of the Ten Commandments, you fail at one point. You're gonna. That's enough to put you under the wrath of God. Unless you receive Jesus as your Savior, and you're gonna go to hell. Anybody ever heard that? Right. What's the penalty for breaking the law in the Old Testament? Death or, think Deuteronomy 28. If you hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and keep all his commandments and do what is right in his sight and obey his voice, then all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Blessed you'll be in the city and in the field and the basket of the store. And what's going to happen? You're going to dwell in the land and it's going to be fruitful. But if you don't, if you break these laws, what's going to happen? You're going to be cursed, but ultimately you're going to be thrown out of the land. So can we be honest? From an Old Testament perspective, breaking the law had nothing to do, sinning had nothing to do with your eternal destiny. It had to do with Israel's right to the land with the blessing of God on the land. Don't you think it would have behooved God to let them know if you break these laws, you're going to be thrown out of the land and you're going to perish for eternity in everlasting fire and torment? Wouldn't he? So from a strictly biblical perspective, the penalty for breaking the law, the truth is if you're a Gentile, you're not under the law anyway. You never were. (laughs) Because you didn't have a right to the land. And the keeping of the law had everything to do with Israel's right to the land. And if they broke the law, punishment wasn't eternity in hell. Punishment was, you're kicked out of the land and cursed with a curse. If you obey, you inherit the land and you're blessed. If you disobey, you're kicked out of the land and you're cursed. But it's all in this life and ultimately you die because the wages of sin is death. In the day you eat of the tree, you will die. The soul that sinneth, he shall die. Nowhere in there is this concept of hell that we have. All right. That's enough for tonight, I guess. (laughs) So let me just sum it up by saying this. Because we have to deal with our presuppositions. We presuppose that we are saved from an eternity in hell, but it's a presupposition when we call Jesus Savior. When Paul called Jesus Savior, he's making a political statement, not a metaphysical statement about heaven and hell. The wages of sin is death, the punishment for breaking law in the Old Testament was they're keeping the law or breaking law. It had to do with the land. Just why the whole whole conflict in in the Galatian church was over should the Gentiles keep the law? Well, they didn't have to keep the law because they were never under the law to begin with. So people say, well, we're no longer under the law. If you were a Gentile, you were never under the law. It was never binding on you because you didn't have a right to the land. And you weren't Jewish. It wasn't your law. So it's impossible if you were a Gentile to go back under the law because you were never under it to begin with. (laughs) So then on what basis does God judge you for eternity? Because it's not the law. Well, on your works, whether you have good works or bad works, well, who decides? Well, God does. Well, how do we know? Well, he revealed in his word. Where? (laughs) Jesus said, I give you one command. Love. All right. Any questions? Are we close? Does that make sense to you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. They didn't die when they ate the fruit. In the Hebrew, it actually says, "You will in, in dying, you will die until you're dead. So in other words, death is a process. The death process will begin. So it's, it's kind of this idea. I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's very cynical. Um, but it's, it's a phrase that people say. The moment a baby's born, he starts to die. Right? So in other words, the moment life comes, there's a death process. That's working. So our uh, our hair turns gray because literally cells die that uh, prevent color from the pig the pigments die right. So that's death working in your body. Paul said death works in our body. Wrinkles, slowing metabolism, all that stuff. So basically all he said was in the, in the day you eat of it the death process will begin until you're dead. <clears throat> yeah good good question though any any others okay so next week we'll start with the word hell what it means um, there's i'll give you a teaser there's four three different words in the new testament gehenna hades and tartarus they all mean three totally different things gehenna means one thing hades means something completely different Tartarus is something completely different. And all three of those words get translated as hell in your Bibles. So we'll break those out next. So anyway, thanks for listening to me. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thanks for watching, listening.